You know, there's so many times in our life where the rejoicing of that doesn't reach our soul and our heart. And in isolation, we are burdened by a thought like, God doesn't love me. I'm not saved because I'm so acquainted with my sin and my worthlessness and that I'm not worthy of this inheritance that God's Son has given. Can I remind you that the reason God was crucified with two criminals beside Him is because they represent us and one got to be with him in paradise, not because he was able to come down off the cross and make everything right and like, you know, outdo all of his criminal activity with great good deeds for the rest of his life. No, his life was coming to an end in hours. And he was in the midst of suffering for his sin. But even in the midst of death at the 11th hour, you know what he recognized about this man, Jesus? He recognized that he is the son of God that he is the propitiation for his sins and that it was nothing that he was going to do, nothing that he had to do, nothing that he was able to do in his own strength except look to the one who died in his place as the sign, as the, the Lamb of God, the one who died for every single one of us. And for those moments when we're sitting there, we're acquainted with our sin and we're very much aware aware of our own unworthiness and our own sinfulness and the enemy wants to bring that thought yeah this applies to everyone else but you that is lies 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 because God demonstrates his love for you and that while you are still a sinner Christ died for you and all who call upon the name of the Lord not might be will be saved now listen your salvation is not based on if you feel saved or not. Isn't that, a good, isn't that a good truth? Your salvation is based off you believing on the atoning work of Jesus in your place. And faith will always transcend your feelings. And so we're going to go to this God because we can come boldly now because he's risen from the dead. And he's at the right hand of the Father. And he advocates for us. And we're going to come to him boldly and we're going to ask him to be with us this morning. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are here because of you. God, you are worthy. God, you are perfect. And you've made us perfect. By grace through faith. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds this morning to be encouraged. God, I'm so afraid that my words will interrupt your spirit. God, would you, would you draw people to you, convict them towards repentance, and encourage them to zealousness of good works? Whatever you got to do, God, you do what you have to do. Use us. Use me. Let me speak clearly and speak to our hearts and minds today about the truth that we need every single day of our life. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us even when we didn't love you and making this awesome way for us to be saved. I pray it all in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It's always good to see brothers and sisters, to see people lifting their hands and praising Jesus, because this is, this is what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. And these little glimpses of life and these moments when we get to just come together and sing are so precious, so precious. 
you know, we, we sing about a song about Jesus dying on the cross. We reflect over communion. We, we see a testimony and even uh, a public display of baptism of someone saying, I'm following Jesus. And, and there's one theme that's surrounding all of this. There's this theme of faith, this theme that I believe in it. I have faith and I believe in this. And the scripture is very much talking about faith all the time. And then we come to the book of James, which is where we are. And we're talking about real faith. And what we've been doing and what I'm trying, what we are trying to do to make very clear with the book of James is that we're talking about what faith, real faith looks like. We're not talking about how to obtain real faith. We're testing the faith that we say we have to what scripture says it is like a diamond that we look at and we say, you know what? I say someone gave this to me and said, it's a diamond. And then what do you do? You take it up and you look, you would expect to see certain, certain components and characteristics about it as you look deeper into it, that would say, oh yeah, this is really a diamond. What happens when you do the inspection? What happens when you find out that the person who sold you this diamond is fake, right? Oh, no. Well, the good news is, is if you find out that maybe, maybe possibly the faith that you have claimed to have is not real faith, you don't have to go out and purchase it. The good news is, is the scripture is always there trying to direct and guide our minds and our hearts to reality and authenticity. And if faith is the one thing, the only thing that will take a sinner and bring them to life, forgive sin, take someone who's destined for hell and put them in eternal life in heaven. If faith is the bridge, then it's very important to make sure that we are on the bridge if we say we are. And that's what we're doing. So I want you to know that my goal today is I, I've actually... I've done a lot of praying, and I'm, I actually have been concerned that I'm going to get up here and speak from this particular passage, and someone's going to leave today and spiral out into like this depressed state of doubt and worried if they're going to heaven or not. And kind of like you, you, kind of the picture I'm talking about curled up, not wanting to do anything, just feeling so overwhelmed by this, this doubt and unsure if they're going to heaven. My goal is not to make you feel like you're going to heaven. The scripture's goal isn't, isn't to coax you into feeling better. But the reality is, is when the spirit is at work through God's word, it will always lead you to Jesus. It will always lead you to joy. It will always lead you to a state of righteousness. And so if the spirit's at work in your heart doing this, you leave. And maybe if you're challenged to consider if your faith is real or not, it will lead you to focus more on the atoning work of Jesus and lead you in zeal towards good works, which always accompany real faith, which is what we're gonna to see today. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to open up our scripture Bible, whether through your phone or through your physical Bible. And if you don't have any means of reading it, I want you to listen as I read these passages, this, these verses. Close your eyes, do whatever you have to do, and let's walk through this section because this is like the theme section of James. This is the section like, like it's kind of like, oh, I've heard this one before. This is the big daddy right here. It's kind of right here in the middle of the book. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James is going to start with a question. He says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, they ask the question, can that faith save him? That's a big question. And then he's going to go into this illustration. Look at this illustration he gets to prove his point. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, 
and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, he asks this question, what good is that? And then he gives the answer, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But, but James is going to stop there. He's going to, he's going to overkill the point. And, and then he's going to give another scenario. He's going to say this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. This is as if James himself is speaking what he would say in third person. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. And he says this, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Then he gives this, you believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active alongside his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he brings up another scenario, another history example. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And then he gives this conclusion in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is a big one. That's a big passage of, script, passage of Scripture, and this is one that might actually, I think, should cause a lot of questions, because rightfully so, as a Christian, there's something inside of you that says, you know what, I want to look out for this thing called legalism. I want to look out for this scenario of life where I'm relying on anything but my faith to enter into heaven. Right? Because the Bible is very clear about, about people who would go to good works to try to enter heaven. But then you have James coming along and saying how necessary good works are. And he even says things like, works justify you. What in the world is he talking about? And the big question is this, is James contradicting Paul? Is James contradicting the rest of Scripture? What in the world is James doing here? Because this passage makes me bristle. It's a good question, but I'd like to say this. Remember, James is showing us what genuine faith looks like. It's as he's taking faith and he's holding it up to the light and he's looking at it with a microscope and he's saying, if this is real faith, you claim it to be real faith, guess what will be there? Guess, good works. That's what he's saying. James is like a test. It's like you have so much time, only so much time here on planet Earth to have the assurance and to make sure that your entrance into heaven is going to be by the only way that God has allowed. And that's you want to be connected to me, you come through my son by faith alone, apart from works. The people in scripture came to Jesus and they said, what work must we be doing to be doing the works of the Father? And he says, the work that God requires is this, that you believe on the one whom he sent. So we could say it this way. If we actually believe, real belief is going to be genuine. And if you really believe something, you're going to see action. Does that make sense? 
So here's the big thing we're going to talk about today. The big question or the big, the big problem that I want us to solve through this passage. And it's this. If faith, real faith is so important and even my salvation is based on it, then how can I avoid wasting my life in dead, fake faith? It's pretty important, right? That's a big question. Well, let's look at it today. We're going to kind of jump around through some of the scripture, and I want us to draw out some main points, and I hope we can be equipped by what we see. First thing I want us to see is this. Dead faith, fake faith, if you want to avoid wasting your life in it, then spend some time looking out for its two-faced ways in your own life. Not, let's, let's be introspective and not spend time looking at it in others' life. Maybe we can help our brothers and sisters by what they say, looking at their fruit, but we really need to make this personal. Looking and scanning my heart. Do I see dead faith's two-faced ways in my heart? Look at verse 14. He asked this question, what good is it? If someone says they have faith, but they don't have any works accompanying what it is that they say that they believe in, they say, is it any good? Three things that I see in here that describe its two-faced ways, two ways. The first one is this. Dead faith says Christian things, but does not live them. It says very good Christian things, uses its mouth, but it does not live them. And the scenario he gives here is of the poor person man or woman who is lacking in food and in clothing and you're posed with an opportunity to be able to meet that need it's ironic not ironic but it's very it's very uh, uh purposeful that this is following after the passage of partiality of not being partial to the rich or to the poor and so he gives the scenario someone comes to you and they're lacking in food and da uh, daily food and clothing and you use your words be warmed and filled blessings this is like this is extremely cruel to say because it's insinuating oh you don't have food you don't have clothing go and provide for yourself the things that it's obvious you're unable to do for yourself right now and i'll use my words to say the things that you need but i won't actually use my works or my actions to meet the need that i see in front of me dead faith is two-faced. And one of its characteristics is that it can say very Christian things, but it will not live them out. The next thing I see is this in verse 18, is that it professes, it uses its mouth to profess Christian faith, but cannot prove it. Look at the scenario he gives in verse 18. He says, someone will say to you, you have faith, I have works. This is where James is taking a third-person third perspective. He's talking about, he's actually saying it, but he's talking about himself from the third person. He's like, you know, someone will say, okay, you have faith. You say you have faith, but I have works. And he says this, show me your faith apart from your works. Show it to me. The point is, you can't. There's, the, the point is, there's nothing tangible you can actually see about death faith because it's just a proclamation. It's just a professing. It's a confession. I have faith. And then he says this, and I'll show you my faith with, by my works. I mean, if I got up here and I said to you, I have four daughters. 
Some of you who don't know me, that might, that might not bother you at all. You might actually believe it. I have four daughters. But those of you who know me, what would you say to me right now? Oh, so what, Shay, what, what are you doing? Emily's going like this. Why are you going like this, Emily? Oh, how do you know that I have three daughters? You've seen them, right? So if there's a fourth in there, it's like, I don't know about a fourth. Something's fishy there. If I say that I love ice cream and I vomit every time I eat it, you're going to wonder, does he really love ice cream? He never eats it, right? So it's this point, like, you can say something, but you would expect to see something along with a profession, right? That's what he's getting at. One of the two-faced ways that we need to look out for with dead faith possibly in our life is, is we're spending our mouth time, all of our energy, in just professing. You know, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he said this about them. He says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And how did Jesus know that they did not honor God for real? Because Jesus said, if you were truly God's, you would accept me. So your works of denying me and trying to kill me show me you aren't actually a part of God's family because my sheep hear my voice. Honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. Here's the third characteristic I see. Dead faith, it's two-faced ways. The third one I see is that it believes, this is, this is an interesting one, it believes Christian things but does not respond to them. Look what he says here in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Then he says this, even the demons believe. And then it says this, and they shudder. You know, normally I've heard people use this verse, and I've used it myself, to use the demons as an example to someone who would just say that God is one. I have agreement with Christian truth, right? I have this belief that the facts are the facts about God. And that's what I'm relying on alone. And, and people come to this verse, I've come to this verse before and I said, yeah, even the demons believe. That's not actually what James is saying here. Actually, it's a little bit worse than that. James is actually saying demons show proper faith. Demons actually respond to what they believe. Demons themselves believe in God and they know that God is one. They know that God is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But for demons, it doesn't just end with the, I agree with it. What do they actually do? They respond appropriately to what they believe. It says they shudder. If the demons actually believed in God, they would be terrified. And you look into the life of a demon, if we could pierce through the, the, the dimension we live in and see the heavenly realm and see them around us, especially with Jesus coming by, we would see them terrified and shuddering. That action, that response in their life is a sign and a proof. Yeah, they believe the truth about God. Death faith will agree with, give mental assent to Christian truths, but it won't respond to them appropriately. So let's think about some of the Christian truths. What would you expect to see in someone's life if they came to the point where they said they realized, I'm a sinner and I'm totally lost in my sins. And unless I am forgiven and unless God shows me mercy and grace, 
when I die, I am going to be cast forever away from him into a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I will spend the rest of eternity trying to, dealing with the appropriate consequence of living a life totally in rebellion to God. I mean, think about the seriousness of that. And someone says, man, I believe that. And then you see them for the rest of their life never grieve over the sin in their life. Never seek in tears God's mercy and grace for the wretched condition. You would over time begin to wonder, do they actually believe what they say? We want to avoid wasting our life in dead faith. We need to look out, look out for its two-faced ways. And if we see it in our heart, fall to our knees, repent, confess it, and ask God to supply the strength to move away from those things. I want to say more about God's place in our faith here in a little bit, but just bear with me. Let's keep walking and moving along in this. The second thing we need to do that I want to draw out from this passage if we want to avoid this dead faith, is this. We need to weigh dead faith's value. James is doing that. He's trying to show us the value of dead faith, of a faith that just professes with its mouth. And the conclusion is this. When you weigh dead faith, you know what you find? You find it's actually worthless. And and I want to show you where he shows this. In verse 16, he says this. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. That's the scenario. Without giving them the things needed for the body, you just use your words. He says, what good is that? It's a rhetorical question in the scenario. It's no good. It's not effective or productive at all. So in conclusion, dead faith is no good. He says this in verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's another characteristic. It's dead. Its value is dead. What can a dead thing do? Absolutely nothing. There's no life there. And then he says this. He goes even further in clarity in verse 20. And he says this. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? He's not calling us foolish. But what he's saying is this. is someone who would want to argue with him that they don't need good works in their life, right? Someone who would want to like take the banner to say, I'm going to make sure that, that there's no legalism in the church and that anybody that ever says the word works, I'm going to be the first one there to attack them. And that would want to argue with this reasoning that faith needs to accompany good works. He's saying, someone who wants to argue that, you're being foolish. He's like, I got to prove it to you. But then he says this to that person. He says, do you want to be shown that it actually is useless? So what's the value? Weigh the value of our, simply our words trying to manifest real faith. It says it's useless. I want to give you an illustration. This came from yesterday. It was a very embarrassing moment. So I'm going to say that God is redeeming me embarrassing myself yesterday. I had a beautiful wedding here. Laura and Eric, maybe you don't know them, but if you do know them, they got married and it was a wonderful, beautiful day. I sat right over here, I think in the third row. And I had with my wife and with Sam Burns, we had went and we rode together and got a cup of coffee. I bought coffee with cash that I rarely have on me. And I got something that I never really have on me, which is change. It was in my pocket. I'm sitting over here in the seat. And all of a sudden, I got my legs crossed. And all of a sudden, I hear ting, ting, ting. And I'm like, what is that? And all of a sudden, seven seconds go by here, ting, ting, ting. And there's change falling out. And I'm looking over at Sam like, dude, fix your, your pocket, man, or something. And then I realize 
it's all that change falling out and it's loud. I mean, it's like everyone around me looking at me like, what is going on here? So like I reach in my pocket and the last thing that left is a quarter. And so I'm like, I'm gonna hold on to this because this isn't gonna drop at all and fall on the ground. And all of a sudden I started fidgeting with it and guess what, it fell and it bounced like 50 times before I could like catch it. That embarrassing moment has nothing to do with what I'm trying to say right now, but, but, but that embarrassing moment made me think of a memory of a story that has something to do with what I'm about to say. As I was sitting there and I was looking at the quarter, I looked at the back of the quarter, and you know what it says at the bottom of a quarter? Does anyone know off the top of their head what it says at the very bottom of the back of the quarter, underneath the eagle? Well, no, 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 and it's not, it does say that on there, but right at the bottom, under the eagle, does anyone know what it says? I think I heard someone say it. Nope, no, see, I didn't know this either when I was in middle school. This is where I'm going to take you back to. I looked down and I saw the words quarter dollar quarter dollar. And it may, I started laughing right in the wedding. I'm like, Lord, help me. I've just dropped all these coins. I'm going to start laughing because now I'm thinking of this embarrassing story from when I was in middle school. But I went to school with four quarters when I was in middle school. And I got to look and I was going to go buy like a honey bun out of the, that was my thing. I'd buy honey buns out of the machine. And I started looking at the quarter and I noticed at the bottom of it, something I'd never seen before. It said quarter dollar. And you know what went through my head? I just heard about these new coins that are coming out that are worth $1. They're quarter dollars. I've got, my parents have mistakenly given me quarter dollars. You see where I'm going with this? You see, my parents have given me, thinking that they're quarters, they've actually given me dollars. Right? And so now I'm like, dude, this thing has more value than I realized in it. So you know what I did? I'm like, I'm not, I'm not wasting these in the machine. And I went to the principal. I went to the principal. I said, Mr. Sanders, I said, look, I said, I've got one of those new quarter dollars. And he's looking at it and he's like, oh, guess what? Because he didn't know what it said at the bottom of it either. I was revealing to him the first time he'd ever noticed that it said quarter dollar. And I, get, I told him, I was like, man, this, these are, this must be one of those new quarter dollars. I, I can't put this in the machine. He's like, you're, you know what, Jasper, you're absolutely right. So he pulled out his own pocket and he gave me $4 bills and he took my four quarters. And I guarantee you, if Mr. Sanders is still alive, he's somewhere thinking, you know what? That young whippersnapper middle schooler tricked me into giving him $4 and he gave me these measly four quarters. I didn't trick them. I literally thought that they were actual dollars, you know? So I'm thinking about the story laughing, but the point of the story is this. Things have value, do they not? And we can be tricked and deceived into thinking something has value when it does not. And the moment we open our mouth and we start agreeing with and assenting to and simply hearing and agreeing, we can become easily deceived into thinking that what we say we have has value, and James is saying it does not. This is why earlier he talked about why it's so important to not be a hearer of the word only, deceiving yourself, but be a doer of it. Again, James is not saying, do what you hear in order to be saved. He's challenging us. If you say that you are saved, if you say that you are a Christian, if you say you believe, then we would see something. And if God begins to convict us that there, our life has only been a life of using our mouth and being deceived by what we agree with, then maybe the faith that we say we have had this whole time could be worthless. I mean, worthless. Now, remember, the reason we're talking about this is so we don't spend the rest of our life wasting time 
thinking we have real faith when it's dead. Look at this third thing. We gotta look out for its two-faced ways. We gotta weigh its value. We have to do this. It's important that we realize its tragic consequences. Don't you think of the word tragic and consequence? Right? So, sometimes it's like, you know, this is just the case, this is true, uh, you know, I'm, I'm agreeing, but, but sometimes we need to get hit in the core with what something means. If we all were walking around with dead faith, like we were truly this type of person that James is talking about, it's going to have some consequences. And here's two that I see in this passage. Realize this. Dead faith makes people think that they are saved when they are not. Verse 15 through 16 is where he shows that faith is no good. And he asked the question in verse 14, if someone says that they have faith but not have works, can that faith save him? And this is a scenario where he's asking the question. The question is no. The answer is no. But the implication is people are thinking so, and he's having to write this to reveal it and challenge the heart to see that no, it does not mean that you are saved just because you say things or profess things or even agree with things. I love that Dennis talked about eating for communion because it made me think of this. In the book of Hebrews 6, the book of Hebrews chapter 6, there's this issue of people who with their life over time, who had been taught salvation, who had been taught Christian things, as time went on, they began to go backwards in their faith. They weren't growing. Actually, the writer of Hebrews is like, man, you guys should be teachers now. I'm having to come to you and teach you the basic things of the Christian faith over and over again, and he was worried about them. And so he saw this trajectory of their life going backwards, not forward, and he says this, if the, the only thing that's left as you go backwards is to eventually walk away from the faith. And James is saying, if someone walks away after tasting the things of the Lord, he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. You can't bring them back because they've already got a piece of it. They've already tasted. They've already been around of it. And that wasn't enough to bring them into the fold truly as a Christian. They leave. They're gone for good. Made up their mind. Society of, it's like eating food, right? But when you, when you swallow the food is when it becomes a part of you and you get the energy and the nutrients from it. But if you're always just taking food and chewing on it and getting the taste and spitting it out, it's never changing you. And so as time went on and whoever wrote Hebrews is looking at the people he's talking to, time is going on and he's seeing evidence in their life that would show a very tragic situation that maybe they think they're saved when they're not. And he's worried that they're going to fall away like the people in Israel did when they were brought out into the wilderness. Hardship came along and they responded to trials that showed that they didn't really believe God was their God. It was tragic. But then look at this other thing that I see that's wrapped up in verses 14 through 15. Implications that I see is that it makes an impact, dead faith makes an impact for the world away from Christ, not to Christ. What does it do when we profess to know Jesus? We profess to know, Christ, uh, to know the God of the Bible, but then our actions are to go and not meet the needs of poor people. And you say to someone who's needy and poor, imagine if you said that to them, man, I need, I need help, I don't have food, I don't have clothes. Go, be warmed and filled, take care of yourself. You do it. What type of impact does that have 
for the world. You know, if faith is dead, that means our light is dead. There's no light in us. Christians are salt and light, and we're told to be that in the world, to not be tasteless. That means, that means Christians are going to stand out. That means if you're a city on the hill, light can be seen. People are going to be like moth to a flame. They, they just can't help it. And I see it. I see it all the time, especially, you know, one of the most beautiful things is this, is being able to work at the mission and open up the Bible to people who have lived their life in abuse and drug abuse and, and uh, unbelief and, and less fortunate poverty their whole life. And they've never heard this. And when you know what's beautiful, you start opening it up and you start teaching it and preaching it. And they start seeing genuine love come from you. They start seeing a type of person that they've never experienced in their personal life, whether through their family or friends. And they start meeting a Christian for the first time is really what it is. And hearing the words of scripture for the first time, man, I heard someone this past uh, Thursday at City Harvest who said, I can't wait to wake up in the morning and hear Bible class. And they literally said right before that, I knew nothing about any of this. And with tears welling up in their eyes and with a smile, they're just, they're drawn to it because it's so attractive because the people who have real faith, who've really been changed, the impact for the world they make is people are drawn to it. People who are at the end of the rope. Now, the other side of it is that the impact for the world is that we'll be hated by the world because of our testimony for Christ. Dead faith makes an impact for the world away from Christ. It doesn't draw people to them. It draws people away. And it's what has caused people to say things like, yeah, the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. This is actually true. What they don't realize is we're just hypocrites who admit we're hypocrites and we're just saying we need help. But that's what the world needs to see. Hey, we're hypocrites and so are you. Guess what? We found help for this hypocritical heart and we know the person who can help your hypocritical heart as well. But people need to see the light flow from a genuine, real faith. They don't need words. They need people who are willing to lay their life down. They need to see light. The impact is tragic if we're walking around with dead faith. Church, how are we going to avoid wasting our life in dead faith? We've got to look out for it, search our heart for it, be willing to see it, confess it. Remember that it's always going to be worthless. We might say something, but our actions need to match up with it. We need to be aware of its tragic consequences, but then we need to remember this. God has given us his word. So the fourth thing is this. We need to learn from God's examples in scripture. Now, I don't have this point on your paper if you're taking, so you're gonna need to insert this after point three, this one here. So if you're like, I don't see this on on the bullets, and that's okay, I've added this one. Learn from God's examples. And then verse 21 through 25, what does James say? He goes back to the Old Testament and he's going to prove why this is true. He says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active alongside with his works and faith was completed by his works. Stop right there and look at me. I think about Romans 4 where Paul gives the same example of Abraham being justified apart from works. So Paul is making this huge logical conclusion to people who would try to work for their salvation to say it is not based on works. And you know so because you can look at Abraham and see that he was justified because he believed God, not because he worked for his salvation. But you have James talking to a different audience. James is talking to someone who might say, and legalism is bad. I'm going to make sure I'm going to, I'm going to make sure works are never said. That's a cuss word. Anybody who's going to bring up the word works, I'm going to show them where they're wrong. And you're going to live your life almost trying to 
actively with all of your energy put it into rebelling against the word works as if it's a cuss word. James is trying to balance and complement and bring both sides to the middle to see what real faith looks like. And he's going to use the example of Abraham. What does he say? He verse now verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Notice James is quoting scripture where it says that it was accounted righteousness for Abraham because he believed God, not because he was obedient, not because he worked, but because he believed. Because faith is what saves, not works. But what James is saying is that true belief can be seen. And the Jews understood this. Faith, if you said you believe something, you would see the evidence of it. And so what was the evidence of Abraham actually believing and trusting and putting faith in God? Okay, when God said go, he went, left his home, and he went into a far country. When God said, offer up your son to me, that's a tough one. But what did, what did his actions show? His actions show he actually believed and trusted God, even with his own son's life. All the way up to the point of drawing the knife up to plunge it into his son, he knew that God would provide faith. And what happened? There was a ram caught in the thicket. And you and I today are blessed as a result of his faithfulness. But his faithfulness was proven by his actions. This is what James is saying. Example of the past. Someone says they believe it, you're going to see it. And then he gives another example. He gives the example of Rahab, the book of Joshua, when the people come into the land. Finally, after all those years of wandering in the wilderness, spies go into the land. And the people of Jericho, they hear about Israel. Rahab, in particular, betrays her own people and becomes the people of Israel because she heard about God and she believed that God was with them, and she actually believed if they came in that they would be completely destroyed because she was seeing through their testimony a victory that the God of Israel was the real God. And so her actions of hiding the spies and betraying her own people was her saying, you know, I believe like this is the right way to go is with these people. And what did they do? She was spared and she was brought into the family of God, a Gentile, but she believed, and we know she believed, because you don't betray your own people and do those things unless you're convinced that this other way is better and true. Actions, works, of the examples of people in the past. Scripture says that when you're saved, you become a new creation. The old's passed away, behold, the new has come. One of the great characteristics of real faith is an example in your life of being changed. You're starting to be changed from the inside out. You're starting with new desires, new ways, new understandings. Maybe you're like, man, I've been saved my whole life. I really don't have that clarity. That's okay. You can still look at God's word and say, but what I believe now about God and how I follow God and what I desire and what I want and what I do is always flowing through this gratitude and this appreciation and this faith that God is God and he's worthy and his son has given me everything and I just want to give it back to him. And yet you're going to fumble through life. You're going to fall back in sin, but you're going to keep confessing and you're going to be moved with compassion all the time when you see the needs of people and you're going to be around the people in the church and you're going to get mad at them. You're going to get frustrated and you're going to have all these opinions, but then you're going to just be overwhelmed with the love for them that's going to take over that and you're going to bear the fruits of the spirit with gentleness and self-control and love and joy and peace and righteousness and you're going to see these things manifested in your life they're going to begin to grow and they're going to keep going 
And you're gonna open up the scripture and you're gonna see the example of those who've had faith before you as well. Learn from God's examples. And then he says in verse 26, he makes the final conclusion. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith also apart from works is dead. In conclusion, here's what we need to do, church. We need to reject dead faith and accept real living faith. And accepting it means being aware and understanding that if I have real faith, good works are what God has made me for. The Great Commission and pouring into the life of the commandments of what Jesus has said and what God has saved me, not just from, but what he saved me to and what he saved me for will begin to manifest in the purpose and the identity of your life, but they will flow from salvation. They will not make salvation. Let me read you some scripture. Matthew 3, 7, Jesus says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, this is John the Baptist, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he said this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you repented, there will be fruit that shows you have repented. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up actual children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, says this about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. If God has saved you, you're going to see the power of God in your life and his changing power in your life. Luke says this. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. I will show you what he's like. He's like a person who built his house on a strong foundation, not on sand. So when the wind and the rain and the storms of life come, like James is talking about in James chapter one, when trials come, you'll respond like someone who has real faith. Matthew seven, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Yeah, see again, mouth. Now this is the other example of people in that day who use their words and they use their works, but their heart was never given to God. They thought through their words and through their actions they would get to heaven. And Jesus is going to say, man, there's going to be a lot of people who say, Lord, Lord, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many wonderful works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, they were always relying on just what they say, but they were mainly relying on the things that they did in the name of Jesus, just connected to it. But it was never genuine. It was never about Jesus doing for them what they couldn't. Bear with me, I'm almost done. I just want you to hear the, the culmination and the unity and the harmony of Scripture over what James is talking about. Paul says this in Ephesians, we know the Scripture. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is a free gift. Through faith, and he says this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works. There's nothing unclear about that, so that no one may boast. But you know what he says here in the next verse? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now I want to lead you to the book of Titus, and I want to leave you with this, a challenge to read the book of Titus this week. It's only three chapters, and you read it with this question in mind. God, show me what purpose you have for my life while I'm still here on planet Earth. Read the book of Titus with that question. 
Titus is all about bringing God's people and helping them see the purpose and the need for good works in their life because that's part of our purpose. Titus 1.16 says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You see that? Titus 2.11 says this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's the grace, but the grace of God actually does something, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Get this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then we're told in Titus to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and to let no one disregard you. And then he says this towards the end of the book, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. You see the clarity in scripture to make sure that it, like we're not relying on works. But listen, James is marrying both things that we're saying. I mean, Paul is marrying both things of what James is saying and what he's saying here in the book of Titus. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Get this, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is what we rejoice in, but it keeps going. And he says this, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help causes and cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. Real faith is productive, living, and active and the real belief that you have through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the grace of God that has reached you, if you say with your mouth, I believe these things, guess what? The Bible's sitting here saying like, I'm waiting to see that you actually believe. It's gonna happen. If the God of the universe is inside of you, he's gonna come out of you. Accept real living faith in church. Let's reject dead faith and not be pulled into this deception of saying we believe when our life shows something totally different. Let's pray. Father, you know the struggle of my heart in teaching us my own fears. I pray your word would not return void and that you would be gentle and patient with us and for the person who may leave struggling, desperately feeling like they're not going to heaven, you'd help them to see the simplicity of the gospel. Looking to you, focusing in on how you died and how you loved us. Putting our faith in you and then letting you, through our prayers and our hands up in surrender, saying, change me from the inside out in the way that I can't the way that you can because I now believe and use me while I'm here on planet earth for the purpose you have me for. Because if I'm worth dying for, God, you are worth living for. God, work this in our heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.